James, soundness of soul from the inside out. And today, the topic is God, wisdom, and your problems. God, wisdom, and your problems. The text we've read, I'm just going to read it quickly. James 1, 13 through 17. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let's pray together. When we deal with problems, we deal with things that are so close to our human existence. And we are dealing so closely with the inward response of our own thoughts that no one else sees. And so when we deal with a subject like this, we, we pray, Holy Spirit, that your word, as it divides the thoughts and intents of the heart, that inward thrust of the word of God that works where our thoughts and attitudes form, that's surely the point. Your word needs to work in the realm of our intentions, our responses, our meditations, our attitudes. And so while we will hear the words with our ears spoken, I pray that for all of us, your Holy Spirit will take the words past our ears and into our souls, that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And the church of Jesus said, Amen. These verses follow naturally from James' grand statement in verse 12, which we looked at. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So now we see, as we keep reading, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, we see that there's this positive side in verse 12, the way we respond to trials, difficulties, and there's also a negative side. So potentially there's, there's good and bad that can arise and develop out of the tough issues of life. Steadfastness brings, verse 12, blessing, And it brings a crown of life. That's God's plan. That's God's will. But steadfastness isn't the only response to trials. Uh, People can despair. People can become angry. People can become bitter. They can get bitter with God. They can become bitter with others. They can give up. What's the use? 
And someone in one of those situations, someone about to give up or give in or become bitter under the weight of a particular trial, according to James, people like that rarely want to blame themselves for their situation. That's why in our text today, 13 through 17, James takes more time than we'd like laboring, dwelling on the the birthplace, the obstetrics of bad responses, sinful responses to trials and temptations. He tells us what we should do, and he tells us what we should know if we're going to handle things in a way that produces uh, steadfastness and maturity, gives us a crown of life. So yes, point number one. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being, and he he talks about two things, tempted by God, so God is the tempter, tempted by God, for God cannot, then he says God cannot be tempted. That's different. So God doesn't tempt, and God can't be tempted. And then he says it again, he himself tempts no one. So whatever else happens, what, 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 you know, where are you at? Maybe you're on the top and things are going well. You know, you're juggling everything and everything's in the air and you're not dropping anything and life is pretty decent. Maybe you're at one of these places in life where you feel like, you know, is, when, when can we have New Year's Eve so I can just kick 2015 out the door and say, good riddance, I never want to see you again. So where are you at? And James says, whatever else happens, nobody should allow the trials of life to make their heart go sour against God. That kind of bitterness, even if it's never expressed, kept in the heart, that's the incubator for all sorts of spiritual ruin. Let no one say. Those words describe very accurately the kind of of conversation that trials can produce in the human psyche. I mean, we don't say it out loud, not usually. Some people do. Mostly not. James is talking mostly about the kind of things you, you allow your heart to speak to yourself without stopping it. Or, or perhaps, maybe even more accurately... He's talking about the kind of conversations we don't quickly silence or monitor or censor in our minds. You know, you know, God's been... I gave that big check on World Impact Sunday. And look at, look at, God's been pretty rough on me. I don't know how he expects me to live for him with the cards he's 
given me to play. And those kind of thoughts do come. Oh, yeah, they come. They come to spiritual people. They come to good people. They come to godly people. I couldn't tell you the number of times some man has come to my office, maybe 30, 35 years of age, and he's bleeding and he's hurting because his wife has left him for someone else. He's not divorced, but she's left him. She says she's not coming back. And as the conversation unfolds, I'll tell that man that he needs to be very careful to stay sexually pure and alone. Because in this difficult time, while she may be running around, he's still a married man and he's not to act like a single man. And... 39 years of pastoring have taught me to know the words that are going to come out of his mouth next. I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, it's not fair. It's not fair, Pastor Don. Does God expect me to live like some sort of monk the rest of my life? She gets to date. She gets to see people. She gets to do all sorts of stuff. And me, I have to, what am I supposed to do? Just sit at home and watch the news? And there it is. There's the complaint. God is not playing fair with my life. He's putting me in a spot where nothing good can come of my life. And many times, in a kind of underground resentment, this man will use that kind of argument. Don't, don't say to yourself. Don't say when you're tempted. Don't say it. But if you do start saying it and you start believing it, there's that underground resentment that will come. And this man, he'll use that kind of inner soul talk to justify compromising morally with his life. Flip it around. There's the wife of an unsaved husband. Doesn't want her going to church. Resents Bibles lying around the house. Doesn't want the kids indoctrinated with that religious stuff. Maybe he's mean. Unreasonable. And she'll come in. She'll say, how can God expect anyone to serve him with this kind of millstone around the neck? It's not even fair to the family. I'm sure it can't be God's will for me to stay in this unfair mess. I am getting out. I mean, I've prayed and I've prayed and God hasn't done anything about my situation. These kinds of trials, those are just examples, okay? But I'm talking about real life here. This isn't theology. Those kinds of trials make it easy for all of us to live Huge slices of life without, without keeping, keeping our hearts with all diligence. It's all about how we respond when God isn't doling out his grace on our terms or on our schedule. 
And when that happens, it's so easy to excuse a hardness of heart, which in, in better times we would have dealt with in a moment. But this just isn't fair. This gets close to home, doesn't it? This just isn't fair. It's not accidental when Jesus told this parable, the talents given out, and there's the guy that got one talent, and he went and hid it in the ground, and he said, here, there's, there's what you gave me, and you can have it back. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, here it is, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. Gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid. I went, hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. I've spoken on the parables before. That's not the point. But it is no accident that it's the one who received one talent. Not the one who received three or five or ten, depending on which account you read. It's the one who received one talent who said to the master, You're a hard man. I got less. My situation was rougher. Look at at him. Ten talents. What did he do to get ten talents? Look at that life. Look at that situation. And Jesus is warning us to guard against the kind of heart that says, God, you're, you're not reasonable. That's That's why I'm in this jam. You're a hard man to please, and that's why I just hid it in the ground. It's your fault that I'm doing what I'm doing. It's your fault, right? That's what he's saying. God, you're not reasonable. That's why I'm in this jam. That's why I'm forced. I'm forced. I'm forced to do what I'm doing. And I know. I know I've taken quite a bit of time to develop this because it's so important. When you, when you fall into trial, temptation, difficulty, don't turn a painful trial into a permanent disability. Don't turn a painful trial into a permanent disability. It's so easy to do, and it all starts with the self-talk. You know, let no man say. Don't even go there. Okay, so, great, Pastor Don. What, what, like, where do we go? What do we do? Point number two. Remember both the faithfulness and the purity of God are consistent and unchanging. And now you come to, we read it so often, and maybe we don't think it through, but it's one of the strangest verses in the New Testament. God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. People, of course, we're in constant Motion. We move up, we move down, we move from strength, we move to weakness and back to strength. Here's the deal. You pick the person sitting in this sanctuary right now. I don't know who it might be. Pick the person in this sanctuary right now whom you admire the most, all right? 
Pick the person you admire the most, and if you could see the inside of that person's life, you would never believe it. Okay? You would never believe it. But, says James, God is not like that at all. He never changes. And, and James says that means two very important things in our dealings with him. The first is, he says, you can't tempt God. God cannot be, God cannot be tempted. That's a very strange wording. It just sounds funny in our ears. When we think of temptation, we think of Satan doing the tempting, and we think of ourselves as being the tempted ones, and that's certainly a biblical theme. And James kind of rocks our world a little bit because James isn't using any of those familiar patterns. He's talking about God as the one tempted and you and I as the ones doing the tempting. Tempting God. What, what does that mean? Well, remember, James is still writing about our response to trials difficulties. And the temptation, of course, it's still a temptation because there's the temptation to respond wrongly, sinfully, badly to those difficult circumstances. So he's talking about what we do when we face what seem to us to be unfair trials. And what we frequently try to do is is bargain with God. Make a deal. This is our last attempt before inward bitterness or despair. God, you owe me this. Or, God, I can't trust you unless you come and answer this right now. Deal with this. There are a million different forms that these arguments take. But James reminds us God, God can't be tempted. You will never make any deals with him or pray him into your own schemes or escape Plans. He will never be manipulated by any rationalizations or excuses. You can never tempt him to buy into what's being rationalized in your heart. God doesn't bend that way. Now, the second thing reminded here is God never tempts anyone else either. You can't tempt him. He's not going to compromise morally because I want some kind of moral compromise. Of course, of course I should be able to date so-and-so. My wife's running around. God, don't, don't you see, God, how fair this is? God, no. I don't work that way. You can't tempt him, bribe him, coerce him. And then he says, God never tempts anyone else either. Church, Settle it. Make this one of the non-negotiables, okay? Make this one of those truths you don't have to debate. Settle it firmly in your mind right now. God is not out to hurt you or anybody else. He's not out to bend the rest of your life in a bad direction. No matter what you're going through, and no matter what your emotional state is screaming to you right now, 
He's not a bad God. That doesn't mean you understand everything. But make it bedrock that he is good. I said, that doesn't mean you can always know his ways. There are many occasions calling for just steadfast trust, even when the way is dark. But know this. Know this. What James is saying is your real enemy, wherever you are in life, your real enemy isn't God. There are other sources to your spiritual problems. Most of them are in here. That's what he's going to talk about next. God is not the source of your deepest problems. And you will never become, verse 4, you will never become perfect, complete, lacking nothing until you face that. God isn't the source of your problems. There are other sources, and that's what James is going to talk about next. Point number three. Our trial may be, probably is, external, but the battle for perfection is internal. God can't be tempted. God doesn't tempt. Okay? So, so, why this battle? Each person, each person, this is, this is everybody, is tempted when he is, and he uses these two words, lured and enticed, and this is important, by his own desire. So, this and this, that's where they come from. If you look closely, you can see what James is doing in this passage. As it all unfolds, he's trying to make sure we don't allow our trial to make us think that God is somehow our adversary. Because James knows nothing good will happen in my life once I have a wrong view of God. Nothing good will happen in my life once I have a wrong view of God. Satan loves to sow distrust rather than goodwill toward Father God. Satan loves to sow distrust. Does that sound familiar to you at all? It should. Now the serpent was more crafty, clever, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, here it is, did God, what? Did God actually say, I don't think that was. Eve, I think you misunderstood what God said. I don't think that's, I think that's how a lot of people read it. But I don't think that's what the serpent was doing. It's not, Eve, I think you must have misunderstood God. He comes, and it's this, and it's like this. Did God actually say... You can't do... Are you kidding me? Did he say that? I can't believe God would say that to you. That's the tone here. Did God actually say that? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit trees... In the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
The serpent said to the woman, No, 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 you'll not surely die, for God knows, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Can't believe God would hold out on you. And if you don't think what James is writing about, there's a tempting situation, the trial, the difficulty, it's not going away, something's welling up in your heart of anger, uh, unbelief, bitterness, resentment, uh, giving up, throwing in the towel, whatever it might be. If you don't think what James is writing about is all that relevant or important, then consider this. The fall of mankind would never have taken place had Eve continued to believe in the goodness of God. The entire planet is broken and distorted by one woman's distrust in the goodness of God. No wonder James says, don't say in your heart, don't do it. Don't do it. The planet won't fall again, but your life will. Your life will. Two verbs are used in that 14th verse. He says we are lured and enticed. And, and they describe two ways in which our, our desires and inward responses to difficulties, how they can ruin us spiritually. Lured, the word implies a kind of, of overpowering, like, like uh, being dragged along or dragged away. Only James isn't talking about some external assault on our will. He's it's talking about desires that you, that you feed and allow to gain momentum like a steam engine until they run full throttle in your life. And then he says, then it, it, you're not going to turn it around. Then the desires just pull you along. They just pull you along. Your biblical knowledge, your good sense your Christian upbringing, all of those things get bound up and pulled along behind this overwhelming desire to adjudicate your own difficult situation on your own terms rather than God's. Rationality goes out the window. Dragged. Dragged away. Can I just say this, church? There's a there's a real practical lesson here. If I were just going to give cautions, let me just say this. Look out for inclinations and longings that feel immediately compelling. Beware of, of responses that can't wait for examination, quiet meditation, deep prayerful thought. Watch out for thrusts of will that won't bow to the advice of friends and fellow members in the body of Christ. When everyone else is wrong and you're right, that's disaster. Let me keep going just with some practical stuff. Beware of attitudes toward God that diminish the inclination to pray. When I cherish something in my heart that I know isn't right, the last thing I want to do is just kneel and say, Oh God, search me and know me. See if there be some wicked way in me. 
Here's another practical one. Beware of choices that make you want to flee church. Or find something else to do. Learn to be suspicious when the gathered presence of other Christians is upsetting, irritating, or boring to you. There's something wrong in your heart. Catch it. Don't allow the best and wisest parts of your life to be dragged away by unchecked inner responses. There are great texts to help us understand what James is talking about with these two dangers. Lured is what we're looking at right now. Dragged away. There are great texts that help us understand that. One is in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, 5 and 6. For this reason... I'm going to say what reason. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness. Oh, James was talking about that, wasn't he? Let steadfastness have her perfect work, James is talking about. Oh, same thing. For this very reason... And the reason, interestingly, is the very same reason James is processing in our text. Trials. Peter is writing to this church about they're being picked on, they're being persecuted unfairly, dragged from their homes, some of them beaten, money taken, all of it unfair, all of it difficult. And you can see where a church might say, well, is this following Jesus? Isn't this wonderful? You know, look what I'm getting out of it. Trials. And Peter says, you're a believer. You have faith. That's good. But trials, trials can be hard on faith. And that faith won't last long unless, unless you, see this? Supplement it. It's not self-sustaining. It's not self-feeding. You have to take care of it. Supplement your faith. Peter says you will always have to add in things like self-control. Mix in a lot of steadfastness. This is what James is talking about. I said there were two verbs in verse 14. The first was lured. Now on to the second quickly. Enticed, he says. The word means to, to trick, to delude with a false appearance, to beguile with some kind of deception. It's quite commonly used in setting a trap for an animal or baiting a hook to catch a fish. That's the idea. The idea is you don't see what it is you are actually getting into until you're on the line, snagged. Remember, James is talking about where our deepest troubles come from. 
And his surprising conclusion is that they're inborn. They come not from the external trial. They don't come from God. They usually don't come from other people, but they come from my inward response to what's going on. You can do things that add to your faith. You can respond in ways that you're lured and dragged away and deceived. makes us respond poorly to trials. Why do we do this? Well, we do it because, like the hook that's hidden by the bait, we don't perceive the problem as lying in our own selves, especially when we're being treated unfairly, when we didn't ask for the problem. We don't feel wicked. We don't feel deceived when we rage against the unfairness of life or even against God. We don't feel unreasonable when we grow bitter and angry at the one who has wronged us, if they've genuinely wronged us. We don't feel sorry for ourselves that our life is more difficult than we deserve. Or rather, we do feel sorry for ourselves. But none of those responses feels wicked at the moment. We feel justified in them. And this, James says is how we we poison the well that we have to drink out of. Don't do it. Don't say any of this inside your own skin. Four. Know to what the trials of your life are giving birth. What are they birthing? 115... Desire, that's my insides, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. There's just no way of missing James' illustration of the motions of responses and attitudes and desires in the face of trial, how he links it with sin, and he ties it all up in the physical process of birth. And here's, here's the take-home from church lesson, right here. Difficult circumstances always birth something beyond themselves. Okay? Difficult circumstances always birth something beyond themselves. For better or worse, trials always produce something. Like a baby coming into the world. Trials always produce something in the rest of your life and in your future. And James is obvious in his attempt to show how both processes work from the inside out. Here are some great life lessons from James. These aren't mine. Great life lessons from James on the birth process of distorted living. We're almost done. A. If you really want to see where you are headed spiritually, watch the inclinations and desires of your heart when life is difficult. If you want to see your future, where you're headed spiritually, watch the inclinations and desires of your heart when life is difficult. Because these desires will tell you where you are heading long before you actually get there. 
Before faith is compromised outwardly, it is all twisted up and compromised inwardly. And also, it is the worst deception to think that you can entertain inward anger, inward bitterness, inward self-pity, and not have it manifest itself outwardly eventually. That's where that birth illustration comes in. What is conceived in the womb doesn't stay in the womb. One day it pops out and says, feed me and send me to university. And what James means is you can't inwardly cherish bitterness, unbelief, anger, resentment, self-pity, you, you think that those things are just in here. They're my business because they're just in here. And James says, no, they're, they're, they, birth, they birth your future. It comes out. Wise people have always made this a matter of prayer. They start with the inside of their lives first. David, who can discern his errors? Well, anybody ought to be able to, shouldn't they? You kill somebody, you rob a bank, you... How hard can that be to figure out? Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. If I can... can If I can deal with the hidden faults, you see, if I can deal with that, then I will be innocent of this. Remember I said from the inside out? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Who can discern his errors? That the inward stance of the mind when trials come, doesn't feel wicked at all. It feels totally justifiable. And what David recognizes and what he prays about is we're not good at diagnosing where our emotions are going to end up, where our inward responses are going to take. Who can figure this out, David says? God, you have to talk to me. I I can't cope with all the stuff that's tangled up in my being right now. That's good praying. And hence his prayer, help me to be alert to inward deviations. I'm jumping to five, point number five. If you want the crown of life, avoid the pitfalls of self-deception. James 1.16 And here's the words I want you to see. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Those words, if you got a if you have a you know your iPad or smartphone or Bible or whatever you've got your Bible, I want you to try and look. I'm not putting these on the screen. I just want you to see some verses. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Those words, do not be deceived, they are placed repeatedly at the front end of so many big, important reminders in the Bible. 
I don't know why I hadn't seen it before. Things that don't seem like they're that big a deal to us, the Holy Spirit, before just stating the principle, will say, don't be deceived. I know you don't think like the rest of this sentence matters, but it does. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. I can associate with whomever I want. It's a free country. No, no. Don't be deceived. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. No. No, no. Don't be deceived. I know you don't believe this, Don. But it's true. Don't be deceived about it. The apostles pound those words into the beginning of commands that don't seem that essential. Who am I hurting? We usually don't see the connection, for example, between the outcome of our own lives and the kind of people with whom we spend the most time. We usually don't see that. We think our life is ours, theirs is theirs, Don't be deceived, Don. This always works this way. And so the writers place these words in important sentences, hoping that their use will make the reader pay closer attention to what follows so their lives aren't ruined just by sheer thoughtlessness. That's what James is doing. Don't get confused when you're assigning blame with the trials and difficulties of life. Know how this works. Don't overestimate yourself. Stop the process of sin in your own heart. Six. To keep your life steadfast and complete in the midst of trials, trace all good gifts back to their proper source. Trace all good gifts back to their proper source. Do the math. Every good and perfect gift, and then he'll say it again, every perfect gift from above coming down from the Father of lights. Just that much for now. I said we need to trace gifts back to Father God. We need to trace because All the good gifts from God generally are mediated gifts. Either that or they're invisible gifts. You can't, you can't see forgiveness from God. You can't keep it in your wallet. It's not in your pocket. Grace from God. You can't, you can't taste it. You can't smell it. So a lot of the gifts are simply invisible to the naked eye. And the ones that we can see don't seem to come directly from God. Food comes from Longos. I know, I went there. Rain comes from clouds, right? Money comes from work. Now, none of those sentences is wrong. None of them. 
But every one of them is tragically incomplete. Who makes the food grow in the soil? Seriously, church, what a miracle soil is. We walk on it all the time, and it's a miracle under our feet. You just put stuff in it, and it grows. Why? I don't know. It's just dirt, and it feeds the whole planet. Dirt. Who causes moisture to form into clouds and fall to the earth? What a miracle that is. Moisture being picked up, put up into clouds, attaching to small, tiny particles of dust, condensing, and then falling down gently to the earth. If all of that rain came all at once, just, in, just like you'd dump a bucket, it would crush everything on the planet. But it doesn't happen that way. It scoops up, scoops up hundreds of billions of tons of water every day on this planet. And they get carried over other places. God moves it. And then it comes down, usually gently. It doesn't destroy cars. It doesn't kill people. And it gives life. Who, who, who does all of that every day of your life? Who gives you life, sight, health, to go to whatever job you have. James says, everything, dawn, comes from God. And the Bible writers and characters understood this very clearly. It wasn't because they were ignorant about how nature worked that they said it all comes from God. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. The writer knew how the streams flowed into the rivers, the rivers into the seas, the seas form oceans, water ascends into the clouds, falls to the earth in rain. He understood how all that works, but he preferred to say, God sends rain on the earth. The people of Jesus' day knew how things grew in the soil. They were rooted in an agriculturally based economy, but Jesus still preferred to say, God clothes the lilies of the field. Why? Because, because that's how you build the right understanding of the heart of God. It doesn't just fall down from the sky. A proper view of the goodness of God doesn't just happen. You keep these truths in your mind. You supplement your faith, Peter says. When you don't know if he cares, remember that he does not shift or change in his love and created goodness. That's what this part means. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In the greatest times of turmoil and unrest, learn to see him as just consistently good. Let me wrap up with this sentence. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, however difficult things are for you right now, here's a truth. The will of God for your life, the will of God for your life right now is something you would choose for yourself if only you had all the facts.
okay? Wherever you are, whatever loss you're feeling, whatever pain you're feeling, whatever loneliness you're feeling, whatever anger you're feeling, whatever confusion is in your mind and heart, the will of God for your life is what you would choose right now if you had all the facts. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. He is a good God. And all his redeemed people said, let's pray.